Stella. Sunny Stella. Running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome again to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Thank you for joining us this week and hopefully every week as we explore the multitudinal universes and the worlds they're in. That it could be just like ours or they could be completely different. This week, we're continuing our survey into exploring in the past, where we go to near-Earth-type worlds that seem to be in the past, but they're actually uh, only time-shifted. They're still in the present, but their time started later than ours did, so it's only the 14th century there, uh, but it's the 21st century in the Earth Prime world, which provides a lot of interesting opportunities for people for high-technology worlds to go and explore low-technology worlds. Tonight, we have with us our guest host, Trav, and also Blix. And Blix is going to give us the lowdown on Japan in the 5th through the 11th centuries. Are there any D20 products out there that cover this period of time really well for Japan? Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Wizards book, Oriental Adventures, has that. Right, they right. The information on weapons. Also, the uh, 3.0 book, the Arms and Equipment Guide from Wizards. That was an even better list of not only Chinese and Japanese, but they had weapons from all over the world. Okay. You could find out the Celtic name for a club in this book. Right. D20 Pass would probably have uh, some things along these lines. And I was thinking, couldn't you use, just throwing a neat little twist there, and I don't know how different the Spycraft stuff was, but you could probably port over some of the Spycraft stuff into this too for your ninjas. Oh, okay. Since we know so little about them, there's no reason why you can't give them some some clever things. I mean, you can do a lot with putty. Right. But, you know, they had special feats and stuff that were good. It was like the best book out there for making spies, you know. I mean, spies were pretty badass. Just like with the certain feats that they got or they could get. So that's something you could port over to ninjas if you wanted to. If you wanted to make a really tough ninja, you know, you uh, you don't you don't have to be limited to past things. You can also look at other books as oh, well. Oh, Blix, there's another one. RPG Objects blood and fists that has stuff on all martial arts different right. feats that you can take which will allow you to take different moves that has uh-huh. a lot of background on japanese combat and martial arts and the ninja and the the samurai because they talk about kendo and stuff that was right. another one. i knew there was another one okay these would be really good things to give the NBCs. I don't think you'd want to be giving them to your characters because then you know they, they would be having to give up feats that would be a more general use outside this particular adventure. That's what I'm talking about. You get involved in an adventure. Like, you, know, you show up in this strange country and you're strangers and you have that deniability about you. So you know the, the warlord of, the, of that area, of that province says, I want you to take out you know, this clan of suspected assassins. But I can't be the one to do this because it could backlash on me because they're posing as villagers. And, you know, they'll say that I killed a bunch of villagers. 
right. or something something along those lines. So the party goes in to take out these ninjas, and you know you want to make the ninjas pretty tough because you know the party decides nobody's going to see us. We're out in the countryside. We'll just go in and mow them down. <laughs> so they go back and get their cache of of automatic weapons, and they go to this like a ninja camp. They got to mow these guys down. You got to like equal the odds, you know, because sword against gun generally not that good. However, if they had, you know, ninja abilities, they might actually stand a chance of, of resisting the party. Yeah. The ninjas have the home court advantage. They know every single place where to hide. If they find out that there's a bunch of strangers coming in, which are going to set up guards, even though they're not hand-to-hand front-like combatants, oh, yeah. that home court advantage is going to give them a distinct advantage against these guys coming in with these strange weapons. Pretty much a fair fight. You knock over a big pile of boulders on top of some people carrying automatic weapons, and you'll find it's more than equalized. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. Right. Japan, its geography, it has a lot of mountains. It was quite common for people to be living in camps, as you said. I mean, just small groups living almost permanently in camps in the forested mountains. And they would, like, hunt and, and fight each other. And, I mean, it was almost a, a warrior culture just running around through these mountains, uh, attacking each other and completely separate from the culture of the villages. Right. Much like the way Afghanistan is today. That's a good analogy. I, I agree. Um, Blix, one thing about Japanese culture I'm wondering if you ran up upon the Yakuza. Yeah, the Yakuza. It says here they trace their origins back to as early as 1612. And at that time, they're called the Kabuki Mano, or the Crazy Ones. So there's got to be criminal organizations during this time, as there always are. But they might not have been like really organized. Like They might have been small criminal bands. Doesn't seem to be a record of a large criminal organization until, we, until you get into the feudal. Right. Well, the whole idea of the warlord was somebody who united these bands of, of armed men and under, under right. a particular banner, and then and that and you had an army. And then after you defeated everybody around, then you parceled up the area and you made them into barons or whatever the equivalent was over there in Japan. So you, know, you had your strong men all over the place who would gather people to them, and they would proceed to try to exert themselves against the other strong men in the area. Right. Plus, if you have a large military presence who can go and do whatever they want to do without people being able to complain about anything, anytime a criminal organization starts up, you know, the military can go in there and just kill whoever they want to kill and use whatever means they want at their disposal. And it becomes difficult to have large criminal organizations because the military can do whatever they want. A lot of these criminal organizations exist because they can hide behind laws. They have protections because people have rights. During this time period, the people don't have rights. This is long before the Magna Carta, before even the concept of rule of law has come into being. Right. Let the gods sort it out. God favors the strong man. Might makes right is pretty much the order of the day. Or your power comes from on high. It's tough to tell because let's say one did exist. The political body doesn't want that to be known because it would be embarrassing to whoever was in charge of the laws in the area. It just wouldn't be written about or wouldn't be preserved. Those writings would be destroyed. The problem with that is you could say, okay, this is what really happened, and you get into the whole uh, history is myth. But if we're trying to play a game where we're saying we want to explore the the 5th to 11th century, then we kind of have to assume that the events as they are written in our own history are true. Otherwise, we're not really exploring that area as, as we intended. You can do two things. You can say, well, it's an alternate, and in this alternate it does exist because for my adventure it needs to. 
or I think it'd be more fun to have that element. It depends on how much of the flavor you're going for. If you're if you just want to see the architecture and the clothing and the the weapons uh, and the general types of uh, war techniques, and you say, okay, that's the fifth century or that's the seventh century in Japan, yeah, and then everything else can be different. It all depends on how far you want to go. But if you're like, you might be somebody who says, oh no, well then these certain events have to also happen. So and so just got coronated, uh, and, and so and so is the ruler over this area. Then you're constraining yourself, and you're not going to have as much flexibility if you want to remain authentic in your own mind to the uh, time in which you're exploring. Yeah, you're either going by the spirit of it or the letter of it, and that's GM decision there. And then it's whosoever book you're reading as far as the letter of it. Right. Yeah. History is written by the winners. Yeah. yeah. But different historians will take a, give a completely different take on areas sometimes. Well, yeah, because you're translating it from the Japanese. I mean, heck, the art of war. I have a copy of that, and there's very different translations of it by American and British scholars. So right there, you know, case in point. Right. So with Japanese history, yeah, you're going to have very broad and different Western translations of what happened back then in Japan. So yeah. for the GM to research it, he may end up finding a few different things. Now, he may just take one, or he may make a pastiche of, like, the three or four sources just because, oh, this looks nice, this looks nice, and then throw it all together, and that's his 5th to 11th century Japan that his players go into. You know, you should be encouraged to make changes to create alternates in any way you want. You could say the year 750 but i want it to be a little more european in its approach because that's how i'm altering this past you can make it so that there's magic you can do whatever you want to again because it is fringeworthy talking about the actual 5th to 11th century japan is to give you a basis from which to start from and then you can vary or alter from there as you see fit you know you can stay with it hardcore or you could change it any way you want to you know you could say well they they discovered gunpowder by this point, and they've got these really rudimentary guns. Game masters should be encouraged to make changes where they see fit. It'll also throw off your players. Let's say you have a player who is a Japanese history buff. Right. You, know, you throw this in, he's going to be playing the character, well, okay, it's like, oh, wait a minute, things aren't quite as I remember learning. So that keeps the players on their toes. And you can go really crazy and you can do samurai cat. Right. Yeah. Humanoid cats are the, the humans of, of this world. More than a few worlds that are in the published portals that it's just like Earth, except it's a different type of creature. Yep. I didn't even think of that when I was doing this. That's pretty cool. Who knows what kind of differences that could make as far as techniques are concerned, because obviously a cat with its natural agility is going to be different. Oh, that would be a whole other cool battle to run. Somebody with heightened reflexes like that. Yeah. Hmm. So, well, let me ask you this. There was a fusion project that came out. It was took place in Japan, but it was about rabbits. It was Yo- Usagi Yojimbo. That's it. Usagi Yojimbo. It was Yojimbo. a comic book. Now, it was right, a comic book at one time, and then they turned it into a game. Right, right. That's right. So imagine you come through the portal, and you guys are looking at each other, and you're all rabbits because it's an other. Cool. And in this other, you all appear as rabbits. That would be kind of neat. You could run that genre, and you wouldn't have to worry about fitting in. You know, like, we don't look right. Like, actually, we, we do. <laughs> I'm aware that your form could change. Well, then again, you could just chalk it up to a problem portal. I, I don't know. You don't even have to do that. Your form didn't change. You come through, and it's one of those ones where you actually possess another being. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, oh. that that's something we always forget about when we talk about these, you know, how to fit in and stuff with the, with the location. 
if it's going to be insurmountable, how are you going to get the players into this world? That is always an option for you. I mean, it shouldn't be your go-to all the time, but that is something you can use. If you, if you have a world where you're just like, man, how do I get these guys in here? They don't look right. They'll never fit into this society as being European descendant people. And it's like, oh, that's right. They could always possess the bodies of locals. Yeah, that's right. And I think that is a key function if you roll high enough on your crystal use skill that you can actually enact that. Yes, all of the things that were considered to be problem portals are actual crystal key functions that if you know about them and you have a high enough skill level, you could invoke them. So could one person with a crystal do this for the whole party? Sure. Okay. So you're, you're basically just turning it on for the portal. So if you needed it bad enough, you could send a veteran with the party. Let's say the party's on a high enough level to do this. They don't know how to do this or whatever. But this mission needs to be done, and, and they want this party to do it. They could send a guy, a veteran, who has several years. If you're like a little bit later in the campaign, you know, like maybe the middle campaign or something, you could send a guy with them that would activate the portal to do that. Or even somebody who's made a skill specialty of crystal use. Right. You know, who could do things that nobody else can do. Oh yeah, I'm looking at the DC here. Yeah, <laughs> I've got I've got the page up, and it's like wow. We wanted those things to be hard. It's something for them to aspire to later on when when you can send them to places that are really difficult, and this would be the way of doing it. Another way of approaching that is let's say you're not in the middle camp, and let's say you're in the early campaign. However, Idet has made allies with another world uh, that has a group that has traveled. And has you know more experience than than the people that I did, and they offer to have one of their guys take you there and activate that function for that portal, so that you can go and complete whatever mission it is. Right for a price, of course. Right, yeah. right, right. For a price, but your character's not to worry about that because that was worked out with I dead high command. So yeah. it, it's independent of you. You just have to do your mission. But the only thing that would be tough with that is is coming up with a mission that I dead would see as that important to do something like that. Well, the easy way is for one of those people to say, hey, I want you to get something from this world for me, and I'm going to make you able to go into the world to get it. And so you can keep it insulated from IDET very easily that way. They simply say, I want you to go to this world, and you don't even know that this person is like you know, a master crystal user. And he walks up, pulls out a crystal, and he says, okay. He says, go on through. It's safe. You go through, and you find yourselves you know, <laughs> rabbits. <laughs> You know, and the first thing someone's going to say is that, hey, does my butt look big? Right, right. <laughs> no, but your ears are huge. Yeah, right. And check out those teeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's always the possibility of us discovering more crystal functions as time goes on. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Perhaps this society that you're going to, whatever the case may be, let's say it's not even the, the Japanese or it doesn't matter. Maybe the emperor has some treasure that he has, this crystal that glows when certain people touch it. And it's like a light blue crystal. That would be a mission worthwhile of sending someone in, sending a team in to steal it. Because he obviously doesn't know how to use it. He doesn't know what it is. None of them have been traveling out on the fringe paths. He may not even know where the portal is. He can make it glow, but he doesn't know about the portal, so two shall never meet. While that would be a little underhanded for Idet, someone high up enough might decide, well, you know, normally this isn't our course of action, but this is 
too tasty a treat to pass up. And maybe you can create something that looks just like a crystal, but it isn't actually a crystal. Oh, yeah, they, you could because you could take a piece of technology that would mimic that exact feature. It would be a crystal that lights up when somebody touches it. That could be done electronically. I don't know how to do that, but I'm sure it could be done. Oh, yeah. PL6 technology, yeah, that, that could be done easily by PL6. Well, not only that, but we've got lights right now. You just touch them and they come on. Well, there yeah. you go. And then you swap it out. He never knows the difference, and it, so it doesn't matter to him. And everyone's happy, right? So, hey, there you go, people. There's a mission for you. Okay, Carol, now you take these notes, and then we're about ready to begin. Oh, okay, sure. Well... What are you two doing here? We don't record until tomorrow. We're making a new promo for All Games Considered, since you were dragging your feet getting one written. Hey, she's right, though. It's been too long, and a lot has happened since the last promo. Yeah, like winning the gold Emmy for Best Gaming Podcast for 2009. You mean the one you try to work into the conversation every other episode? Hey, now, now, there's more than that. There's the new format. You mean the main show every two weeks and the assortment of other features in the meantime? Right, like games you may never have heard of, the review and new shows. Don't forget the RPG buffet. And on the main show, we have more time to focus on gaming topics. Like board and card games. And RPGs. And the people who play them, from the old school to the newest of the new. But But no no changeling. Hey! Find out more at agcpodcast.info. All games considered, because there's more than one true way to play. What kind of sailing did Japan do during this period of time? They didn't do a lot because they didn't really have much of a navy yet. They were not an invasionary type. They had ships. They traveled to Korea and, and they actually they sent some warriors over to Korea. But there was this one period in time where they were going to help one clan in Korea over another. That's when Buddhism was introduced into Japan as sort of like a trade of some kind uh they wound up not fighting so they didn't i guess they didn't transfer a whole lot of warriors over but they must have been you know traveling back and forth with them but they didn't they didn't have a navy per se i would think that because japan would do trade if they did or exploration with the mainland that body of water is not all that big between japan and the mainland they're not going to have mighty mighty sailing ships. They're going to have ships that will get them that relatively short distance. They're not traveling out in the Pacific. They're traveling all in the straits in between Japan and Russia, Japan and Korea. So yeah, the ships aren't going to be all that big. I don't think they'd be that big anyways. It takes a a real government to build big ships. Obviously, you know, China has a lot more land. They probably have a bigger army than Japan would or even Korea. I mean, they wouldn't exactly be using dugouts, but they're not going to have huge sailing ships like Britain did. Certainly not at this time. No, no. Just The reason I'm asking is because 5th century to 11th century, 600 years is a long period of time. I mean, a lot of things can change during that. I just wondered how insular were they. There was lots of periods of time in Japan's history where they were very insular. Very isolationist, yeah. Yeah, and I, I just wonder if that was true during this period. It doesn't sound that way. No, it wasn't. They became more isolationist during the feudal period, just after this. Like when you get into the the 1200, they became very insular, and it became more and more. They became more and more, just like China. China was the same way, because what happened was is that when the Europeans came over and they they started trading with them, and and you know, they started seeing these Western influences, and they didn't like it because it. it conflicted with their way of life and they just they shut their borders down because they, they just didn't like the fo- foreigners influence do you remember what actually opened up the borders in uh in japan 
uh, battleships. It was the United States. We brought a steam battleship into their harbor and said, either you trade with us or we blow you up. Right. That gunboat diplomacy coming back into play, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, as I say, there was a time when it was good to be the guy with the steam battleship. These were metal-clad ships. Most of their weaponry would bounce off. Looking here at a map of at least modern-day Japan, and other than the strait in between what would today be South Korea near Pusan and the island of Kyushu, that's the smallest area of water. The Sea of Japan is actually probably about four or 500 miles across. So yeah, they would have to have pretty big sailing ships if they wanted to sail to what is now North Korea and like Kamchatka, Vladivostok. Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought I thought there was quite a bit distance between Japan and, and China. Yeah, I'm looking to see about 500 miles here, uh, just eyeballing it, about 500 miles, Bruce. It's definitely over the horizon. Yeah. Yes, yeah, but they, they didn't have like an invasionary navy, or they didn't have naval warring vessels. Japan is a set of volcanic islands, so... Yes. They didn't break off from anywhere. It's, uh, originally, they must have been settled from someplace else. I think they were originally settled from China. Yeah, I like, think. yeah, that's Don't that's the belief. Now the belief is is that during the the last ice age, they were actually able to transverse the distance from China to Japan rather easily because the water levels are three hundred feet lower. I think there's a land bridge between China and Japan during that period of time. And I think people just walked over. Because people don't understand that when you have an ice age, all of a sudden all that water in the ocean gets tied up in glaciers and things like that, and uh, the water level goes down. Well, yeah, in that case, they could cross through Korea into Kyushu or down to the northern island of Hokkaido through the Sakhalin Islands. So you have here in a set of islands where, other than the separation between the islands themselves, you creating some subcultures, they're pretty much isolated. The, the cultures that we're seeing there are really not that affected by any of the other oriental cultures that are out there. So it's, it's one of the reasons that playing Japan is fun is because you really do have a very distinctive flavor to that particular area and those kind of adventures. From what I see here, Shinto and Buddhism are Japan's two major religions. They've coexisted for several centuries. Yeah, but there was one before that, and it was when Buddhism was being introduced. It met resistance, and there was one clan that took it up, and the emperor allowed it for that clan alone. Yeah, the question was, was there before Buddhism? And it was right around that time. I'm seeing maybe possibly uh, because they talked about, uh, let's see, Japanese mythology, animistic culture, the creatures in Japanese mythology like the kappa, which were the turtle people with the little pool of water on their head. And if that water got dumped out, they'd lose their power. So they had animalistic type creatures that they may have deemed had special powers. So it was like an animist type religion. Mm hmm. Have been before Shinto and Buddhism came up. That's where you're probably getting your cat warriors and dragons. In there, I would recommend Oriel Adventures because they have a, a pretty good mini monster manual in there of Japanese based monsters like Oni and Kappa. And... But let's suffice it to say that we're not talking about pre 500. By 500, Buddhism is in play from there on. Pretty much, Buddhism is pretty potent and Shintoism as well. If one of your characters is a Buddhist, he's going to fit right in. He's, he's going to be able to know, to tell the party what you can and cannot do. Well, yeah, because technically there's no direct route from China. China doesn't face Japan at all, so they'd have to go through either Korea or Russia in order to get to Japan. So, so yeah, so Buddhism comes up 
initially from India into China and then goes down into Korea and then comes across to Japan. If you want to embrace the Shintoism, some of the kami were also considered to be a guardian, a deified ancestor of the clan. So therefore, a kami could look like a human being. And as I keep mentioning it, you could pose as that. It would explain the differences, why you're bigger than they are, why you look so much better than they do as far as your health and your teeth and things like that. Hmm. You know, because, you know, gods, they, they don't have to worry about nutrition and flossing. Right. Gods can have caps. <laughs> you know, and of course, you can go really wild with that. Like the, the Jaws guy from the James Bond films, where his caps were all metal with razor-sharp edges on them. Jeez. You go really crazy if you wanted to. Japan during this time period is going to be before what most people are used to, what most of the movies are about. So you just got to get in the mindset that this is the pre-society to the society you're most likely familiar with. Katanas don't exist. The The Japanese armor, as you know it, doesn't exist. Uh, you, you do have horseback riders. You do have, you do have warriors. They are referred to as samurai. You're going to have your ninjas. But they're going to be using mostly what you'd recognize as ancient Chinese weapons, long swords and daggers and spears. And spears are going to be really popular. So I think that's about what I have on Japan from that period. I mean, you know, I could go into who was emperor and all that stuff, but I, I don't think that that's really that important. I mean, if you really want to know, you can look it up online and find it just as easily as I did. I think the, the important thing is what you can do with all, you know, from this time period. Thank you again for joining us for the Fringeworthy Podcast. And we will continue our survey of the ancient world. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun.